everybody. This is Keach Rainwater on the Designated Drummer Podcast. Welcome. I just want to take a minute to thank all of you who tune in and listen to my podcast. Um, it seems like uh, the more I do it, the more fun it gets and the more interesting people I get on my podcast. Anything from agents to financial people and lawyers and anybody having to do with the entertainment field I am totally fascinated with and I want to talk to them and learn all I can and pass it along to you guys um, so thank you so much for tuning in and listening to me rant and rave about stuff and uh, ask stupid questions from other drummers and other people so um, it's been a really fun time and I just again I want to thank everybody for listening to me and tuning in and all that so this week I thought I would answer a question that I get a lot about how I got started in playing drums and what my personal sort of journey was and, you know, when I started and how it started and how I stayed with drums and all that. Um, and I would just thought I would uh, bring you guys along into the journey of what made me into who I am today as a professional drummer for Lone Star. And I have actually been in Lone Star since 1994, since before we got our record deal. There was a couple of drummers before me in Lone Star, a couple of guys, um, great drummers. But um, I guess they moved on, wanted to do other things. And we had not had our record deal at this point. There was some writing going on and things like that. But I got a call from Michael Britt, uh, to who I had known previously from another band, to come to Nashville and join this band, and he thought that they just might be getting close to having a record deal, and would I be interested, and so I came to Nashville, and more on that later, but for right now, I'll talk a little bit about how I got started, and things that I learned along the way that really helped, um, you know, basically form me into the professional drummer that I am now, you know, it wasn't always easy or great or fun or, uh, you know, super intuitive. It, it was really just kind of like a struggle a lot of the times to learn what I needed to learn to be who I am today. So um, one of the things that I remembered as a child, uh, as a kid, before I ever got into drums or music or anything, was that I was really into gadgety things like tools and anything that that was made of metal or that was, uh, you know, you put together a symbol uh, that, you know, things that like puzzles and anything metal and anything like a tool or something like that. I was always really, really interested in that stuff. And I wanted to get my hands on that stuff. And um, I had as Christmas gifts and things like that, I would get like little kits and models and things like that, that I would always, um, I just love that kind of stuff. Now, and I will say that when i first got into music, I would, something happened to me when I would get around real drums. You know, I could listen to drums. And first of all, I'll say that when I listened to drums as a kid, I would listen to a drum beat and I already knew in my mind that I could play that. I just thought that was really normal. I thought everybody did. I thought everybody could figure out, oh, there's like a bass drum you hit with your foot and your right hand plays on the hi-hat or the ride cymbal. And your left hand plays the backbeat, if you're right-handed, that is. Um, so I just knew that, and I just thought everybody knew that. I kind of thought that's just something like walking almost. It was easy, easy as that. So I got uh, really interested in 
music and I could somehow just really pick out the drum beat over anything. When I got into band in sixth grade, when you choose your instrument, that kind of thing, I uh, got in the line for the drums. I really wanted to play the drums. I thought, well, that's, yeah, that'll be fun. And they said that they already had enough drummers, that, you know, we've already got enough, move on, go choose another instrument. And I thought that was a little discouraging, but I thought, well, you know, my dad played trumpet and he always asked me if I was going to be a trumpet player, if I wanted to play trumpet like he did. And part of me kind of did because, of course, the trumpet was really gadgety too. It looked, it was like a really cool instrument. And I was kind of drawn to that because he actually had a trumpet and I could mess with it and play with it and stuff like that. I thought that was really fun. Um, so I knew it was either going to be drums or trumpet. So, uh, they already had enough drummers. So I got out of the line. I went straight to trumpet and tried it out. And he said, yeah, okay. Why don't you, you know, just report to band next. It was like the year before it was fifth grade, actually, when we choose the instrument. And then over the summer, you would uh, acquire your instrument. A lot of kids bought or had their parents buy a cornet. And I had, um, my dad had this old trumpet, and I played that old trumpet for, oh, a couple of years until my dad finally um, bought me a really nice nickel-plated uh, box Stradivarius um, trumpet. A really, So I went from having like the worst trumpet in the trumpet section at school to having the best and most professional trumpet in the whole section. It just went from one extreme to the other. And that was really kind of fun. So I played the trumpet for a few more years. But I will say that there was an epiphany. There was a time, my second year of trumpet, of playing trumpet, I was in seventh grade. I was walking home uh, from the band. I was walking out of the band room and I had my trumpet case with me, which was kind of like a little suitcase. I I was carrying my trumpet and I walked by the stage where some guys from the band, from band, uh, I believe it was two trombone players and a clarinet player or something like that. had a little three-piece rock band and they were playing things like drums and guitars and bass and they were rehearsing a song and if i remember right it was um if i remember uh, correctly it was uh it was a michael martin murphy song wildfire they were playing wildfire for the talent show they were rehearsing for the talent show that was coming up and i looked at them and i thought i didn't know you could do that i didn't know that if you played in band and you played one instrument that you could use the school's um, stage or, you know, performance, which was really kind of our lunchroom, but there was a stage there where we had all the little school plays and things like that and any kind of music concerts. Um, And I I had been on that stage before playing, you know, like a Christmas concert or whatever, um, playing trumpet. And I walked by and these guys were rehearsing with like guitars and drums. And I looked back there and I saw the trombone player. His name was Danny. He was back there playing drums and he was actually really good. He played the drum kit, and he, you know, just sounded like a, a really good drummer. He was just keeping a good beat, counting off the song, starting, and they would stop in the middle of the song and say, wait, let's fix that one part, and them sort of working that song up. It it did something to me when, and I guess kind of metaphorically, I put my trumpet case down on the floor, and I sat on it like a like a stool. You know, I sat there and watched them in amazement, rehearse this song 
and work it up. And they played it a couple of times and they played it again. I'd never seen a, like an actual band do that before. Now I knew that we did it in bands and the band director would do that, but how the musicians in the band would stop and say, Hey, wait, what's that part you're doing over there? And they would cross pollinate and would say, Hey, that guitar part that you're playing, isn't it that? And the, they would look back at the drummer and go, Hey, on this fill could, they were sort of like teaching each other the song. And I thought that was about the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And that is when the epiphany started for me of when I sat there and I watched that drummer, Danny, that trombone player playing drums back there, counting the song off and playing. And that's what started it for me. I saw that and I said, that is exactly what I want to do. I want to do that. I want to count the song off. I want to be the drummer. I want to play the the drums for the whole song. I don't really care about singing or anything like that or even writing songs or had no interest in that. I just wanted to be the drummer in a band like uh, with guitars and, you know, like a popular band, like a pop band, sort of like a rock band. But I really didn't care if it was rock or country or any kind of style. It, I just wanted to be a drummer in a band, not the school band, but in a band. And that's what really started it for me. And it seems like from that point on, I never, I never stopped. It never stopped for me. I never lost interest in it. I never thought, hey, I'll go do something else. From that very moment on, that epiphany, uh, that day in 1976, it started for me, and it just has never ended. And uh, I have just keep on playing drums and keep on doing what I do and loving it. I love every minute of it. I love getting on stage. I still like counting the songs off, and I still like playing the songs, and I even still like rehearsing, uh, working up songs and uh, getting it perfect and that kind of thing. Um, so in high school... I continued to play the trumpet for a little while with secret dreams in my mind about playing drums, and um, I just kept doing that. I didn't have any drums. I had a pair of drumsticks, but I didn't have any drums, so I would hash together any kind of thing that sort of almost sounded like a drum, like cardboard boxes. That was actually my first drum kit, was a set of cardboard boxes. And back in the 70s, the drums kind of sounded like cardboard boxes, really, if you think about it. If you listen to some popular songs, some of the drums sometimes would be kind of muffled down or tape. We would put tape on them or whatever, and they would kind of have a, have a thump sound. And to me, cardboard boxes, when you hit a cardboard box with a stick or something, it kind of sounded like drums. So I had taken a whole bunch of cardboard boxes that I had gotten collected, and I made a whole drum kit out of them, and I would practice that until the boxes would be completely shredded um the cardboard would just break apart and i would have to turn the box to the next side and then when those got all shredded i was out of a drum kit so i kept saving my money and saving and finally um ironically enough the guy that i saw playing drums danny the the trombone player when i had that epiphany his brother um had was a drummer and he had a set of drums not really a full kit but it was kind of a set of drums some drums with things missing, I'll say that, partial kit. and uh, But it was enough for me to get kind of started. And I was good enough at building things and making things and sort of fixing things, uh, which would also help me later in my career as a kind of, I've been known as sort of the MacGyver of the band. You know, if anything can be fixed, I can, especially if it's made out of wood or wire or metal or anything like that, I can probably either build it or fix it or repair it or whatever. So, uh that really helped me a lot, having that first drum kit that didn't really, I mean, it was like a bass drum with no pedal. It was a floor tom with no legs. 
a snare drum that didn't have a bottom snare part, the head or the snare, just the top head. Um, I don't even think I even had a snare stand. I just had like a bass drum, a tom, a floor tom with no legs, and that was about it. It was just some drums, basically. And so I collected and borrowed and begged and, well, I'm not going to say stolen, but that sounds pretty bad. But um, I obtained as much as I could, any parts that I could, either if I didn't build it myself, I uh, um, saved up money and bought it and put together my first drum kit and started practicing after school. Um, and I kind of got worse at the trumpet. I kind of fell off of my trumpet duties. I wasn't practicing the trumpet anymore like I should have been. Um, and I started focusing more on drums and pretty soon I sort of dropped out of band in 10th grade and I started focusing. My idea was to focus more on drums. And so I kept focusing on drums, playing to records. And one of the things that helped me out a lot was, uh, that I'll mention a little bit later about one of the, one of the qualities that I've been told that I have that, uh, is really useful was being able to change uh, styles being able to know different kinds of styles of music and uh that came from my parents love of music and that they would instill in me and especially my mom was a professional singer too she sang and played guitar and she told me she said you the best thing that you could do is to learn every kind of style of music that you possibly can and that's going to help you later and at that time, I didn't agree with that. I thought, well, I'm going to be a rock drummer, so why would I listen to jazz or anything like that? But I did actually have a love for different kinds of music. So um, when I was in high school, my record collection would have been something like Boston. That was my favorite group. Journey. I listened to Gino Vanelli. I listened to Chuck, Chuck Mangione, of course, because I was a trumpet player, and I really liked the trumpet. Uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and all these different kinds of music. I would listen to the popular rock. I would listen to old rock and roll. I would listen to very straight-ahead jazz, jazz fusion once I heard, really got into Gino Vanelli and uh, those kinds of things. Um, also Spyro, Gyro, those kind of deals. Very jazzy, very sort of fusion. Um, and I started listening to that, and I had a steady diet of just different kinds of music. And that helped me out a lot later in playing in the studio and playing where – a producer or somebody would say, hey, let's change this style to something a little lighter or let's go with this sort of jazz feel or let's, you know. So when you're working up songs in a band, especially if you're in a cover band, you really have to be able to be a chameleon and play one style and then change your style of playing to fit another song. I mean, you couldn't be just like a jazz drummer and then play like a, a really straight ahead rock and roll song. You have to kind of know those styles. And so I really took it upon myself to play, when I practiced my drums, all different kinds of styles of music. And so through high school, I practiced all the time, and I wanted to be in a band really bad. I was in a couple of little garage bands that we put together that I was really discouraged by that because some of the other players, all they wanted to do was just kind of jam and not really... They weren't really, they didn't have an end goal in mind. Their, their goal, they didn't really have a goal. It was just to jam, just to play and just have fun. They weren't thinking of it as a career like I was. I was like, let's put some, let's get these songs tight and let's rehearse them and get them down and play them perfect and then play them again and then have them like where we can just play them perfect and then do some gigs or something, some parties. And so we basically would just kind of 
struggle through one song after another and then sort of fall in and out of these songs and not really come up with a good ending and just kind of jam and it really didn't go anywhere until I got out of high school and I got a call from a friend of mine and I was going on auditions and things like that. I really wanted to be a drummer. I was working at a, I was working at a gas station, a shell station. And, um, I was just, you know, sitting in the booth, taking money and listening to music and that kind of thing, just going on auditions anytime I could. And, uh, I finally got a call one night from a friend of mine that was in a band and he knew I was a drummer and he kind of stuck his neck out for me and said, Hey, this guy right here, this guy, Keach, he, he's the guy we need. Now he hasn't been playing professionally very long. He's kind of new at it, but he's just out of high school and he's never really done a proper gig before. But he said, I know, I know that this guy can do it. He goes, I'll vouch for him. And, uh, thankfully that he did. And I got in this band and we, we played, it was my first professional gig, you know. It was called the Doc Apple Band, and they were a show band. Mostly, they kind of came from country a little bit, which I knew at that time in the early 80s. Country was, because of the urban cowboy movie, country was a big deal. And so it was all over the radio, and everybody sort of knew these popular songs by Charlie Daniels and um, Alabama and things like that that had just come out. So it was kind of... Country music was kind of like pop music, really. And there, were, there was country artists in the pop genre, you know, in pop radio. So you heard it all, and you could play it all, and that kind of thing. You were expected to play all those songs. So this Doc Apple band um, played a variety of everything. And we did a variety show. We worked up, we rehearsed a variety show. It had stuff from like the 50s and 60s and kind of nostalgic-type music. And we put on this sort of variety show where we played old stuff and Elvis songs and all these different things. And it was kind of a variety show type thing. And my first really experience in getting on stage and actually putting on a show where you're smiling and you're having a good time and you're, you know, expected to, you know, look like you're having fun. And even if you're having a bad day, which is one thing I learned back then when I first got into the first band I was in, I'd never been in a professional band where you that's what you did full time and I realized really quick that you could have a bad day you could be having a bad day financially or you know you broke up someone broke up with you or something was uh, not right in your world your car won't start or whatever you're having this trouble you have to get up on stage and act like you're having fun like none of that matters and I find that I found that difficult at first thinking like man I'm not in a good mood tonight I don't really feel like playing but you had to do it anyway so that I started doing that, and I started getting used to doing that. And then after, you know, after a while, it just kind of gets, this is what you do. You know, you get up there, and you switch into show mode. And no matter what's going on in your personal life, you just have fun. You just go up there and entertain the people, and you do your job. And I learned that through that first gig that I had. But um, one thing that I learned about being in that band was that I would hear other people talk about other drummers and they would always say something like um oh you know what that guy that drummer you should get that guy so if someone was looking for a drummer let's say for instance and I would just be listening in on the conversation and they would say yeah we're looking for a drummer and I was already a drummer in the band so I was taken but I would listen to the way they would talk and they would say yeah you should get that guy that guy he's really good you know that drummer and I was so jealous of that guy you know that they were talking about I and and I kind of was because when I got in the Doc Apple band there was my friend that said, you should get that, you should get this guy. I know he's he's a 
he's new at it, but I know he can handle it. I know he would be a good drummer for us. And, uh, but then ever since I would, then I would hear people talking about a drummer that they liked, that they said, you should get that guy. And I wanted to be that guy so bad. I wanted to be the kind of drummer that people would say, you should get that guy. You should get Keech. He's the guy. And I think it kind of, um, I don't know, it kind of informed the way I was going to conduct myself. And I wanted the, the way I, the drummer that I wanted to be, I constantly worked at that. I practiced all the time and I worked on my look a little bit. I got bought nicer clothes. I grew my hair out at, at that time in the eighties. It was kind of the style. I grew my hair out long and I it was just really sort of work on my, my look. And it was all kind of just an attempt to sort of be that guy, you know, that, that everybody wanted to play drums for them. So I, w- I was in and out of a lot of bands in the 80s. There would be a band, and we would play, and we would make money a little bit, and never really made any records or anything, but just playing live, you know, playing live country music. I was in some rock bands and things like that, but never really made very much money, and the, those bands would break up, and the, someone would decide they want to go do something else or be in another band, and then somebody else said, yeah, I think it's about time. we." And then next thing you know, the band would dissolve, and you'd be out of a job for another few months. And it was another thing that I learned along the way was now, now when I say fallback, I don't mean like another career Um, because I have learned and I have heard other people podcast and talk about this, that if you have a fallback in the music business, you're just gonna fall back on it and you're just going to get out of the music business. So don't have a fallback. Do not have a fallback because if you do, you're just going to fall back on it. You've got to think more like straight ahead. This is what I'm doing. No matter by hook or by crook, I am going to make it as a musician and I'm going to make my way as a professional musician no matter what. So don't have a fallback. I know that most people would say, oh, you got to have a fallback. Got to have something to fall back on. Well, that is true. And so I had some things that I would do in between gigs and I was a good woodworker. And so for a while there, I worked for a shutter company where we installed shutters and we built little you know wooden shutters blinds and that kind of thing that you have in your home I used to work for a couple companies that did that until I had another gig come up and then I would say okay I'm off to go play drums again and then I would go play drums for another three or four months and then that band would break up and then I would be back to the shutter company again or another shutter company and because I kind of knew that so I had a little bit of a fallback but it wasn't a full career fallback it was just something to do while I was waiting for the phone to ring. That's that's the important lesson there, is find something to do that you can make money at, whether it's um, uh, you know selling something or working at a store or working at your, your parents' company or something, something that's easy to get that you know you can make money and that uh, you can kind of just keep get by for a little while, put money in the bank, pay your rent, whatever it takes, until that phone ring. And the phone will ring. Again, if you're a good player and you have invested time and years into your career, that phone will ring. Someone is going to be looking for you, and they're going to need you, and that time's going to come up. And at the same time, you got to network a little bit and go out and talk to people and find out if there are auditions or whatever, you know. But that phone will ring again, and it always does. It always has. So um, I was just striving to be that guy. So I was really fortunate enough that I didn't have to fall back on – too many other little odd jobs here and there. I was that guy enough. I was sort of that guy, quotation marks, uh, enough to where 
if I uh, knew a bunch of people and I knew someone was looking for a drummer, I would approach them and I would say, you know, hey, you know, let's get together and talk and see what you got going on. And I would always, I could always, you know, sometimes I would have to sit and wait by the phone for a little bit, but then another gig would always come in and it just kind of kept going that way. And, uh, you know, yeah, back in the early days, I did starve a little bit here and there, you know, waiting for that phone to ring, working at the shutter company, just getting by and that kind of thing. And I was able to get another gig at some point until finally um, I got a call from a friend of mine. It was it was one of those you need that guy kind of experiences. Uh, the group Canyon, who I knew who they were, and there was a good band around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I admired them. I never really did see them very much because I was always playing and they were always playing. I never did see them at a gig, but I heard about them and I sort of knew who they were. And someone had told me that Canyon was looking for a drummer and they had actually called me. I was in another gig and they had called me to, to come play with them. And I had to turn it down because they only needed a guy for two weeks to fill in for two weeks until they were going to get the drummer that they, that they wanted or, or no, I'm sorry, their drummer, um, had a, a hand operation or something and he was going to come back in a couple of weeks or something like that. And they didn't need anybody full time. They just need someone to fill in. And they, my name came up and then that drummer ended up, I think he ended up either just getting out of the business completely or something with his wrist w- wasn't quite right. It was going to take longer for his wrist to heal because he had broken his wrist or something. And uh, so then they called me back and said, Hey, listen, we are actually looking for a full-time drummer. Are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, if it's full-time for sure. Uh, they said, well, we travel, it's, on a, it's a road gig, we have a bus and all that kind of stuff. So I said yes, and I gave my notice for the band I was in at the time, which was kind of a house gig uh, in Grand Prairie, Texas, and uh, gave my notice. And I'll never forget the, the night that the Canyon bus pulled up to that gig, and I, I out, loaded out my drums from that place, that house gig I was at, and they loaded it up on the bus. And I actually had to get a friend of mine to drive my truck back to my apartment uh, because I was just going to have to get on this bus, the Canyon bus, and then we were hitting the road for somewhere like Amarillo or something like that that night. So my truck, I had driven my truck to the gig and driven the bus, driven off on the bus. So I had somebody to drive my truck back. So anyway, uh, from that point, I was in Canyon, and I was a, I learned so many things in Canyon. I learned, I really kind of, that was kind of my wake-up call, my growing up gig, because the leaders of that band, Steve Cooper and Johnny Boatwright, the, the both of the owners and the leaders of that band, they were real sticklers about things like being on time, um, being prepared, um, you know, being to the gig early. They, they made it a rule, you know, it was like they had these rules that we followed that really helped me out in the, in the future, that helped me out to this very day about being prepared being on time, and um, also I will say they are, they were, and still are, very good PR people, and they taught me how to always be on, always be friendly, always be, um, you know, have put on your your good your good face, your good side. Um, even if you're having a bad day, you still got to be, a, you got to network, and you've got to talk nice to people, and you've got you can't you can't tick anybody off, you know. You have to always be on. And I remember Steve 
and Johnny, they were such hard workers and such diligent. They would run the band, sing and play. At the end of the night, we would sign autographs, and they would just they would have their friendly, smiley face on. And then I would watch them later go and collapse, you know, <laughs> from just exhaustion. And I learned a lot about the, uh, about that whole part, side of the business, about being um, friendly and just being being a good person, just being putting on a good, friendly face to the other musicians and to the crowd and to fans and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, I just learned a lot from that band. And, uh, that was when I kind of went from being a okay drummer, you know, just sort of a, yeah, he's back there playing, he plays a good beat, you know, he's to being like, uh, the kind of drummer where people would, would say, well, we came to, to watch the band. We love watching you play. You know, because you're back there, I would just put on more of a show. I guess I, um, I had these. I would get really hot when I played. I would sweat a lot. So to solve that problem, I put these little fans down, these little blowers, down low in the kit, blowing up at me. And, it, and of course, I, at that time I had long hair. It would blow my hair back a little bit, and people loved the way that looked. And a lot of people kind of criticized me, said, "Oh, you just do that because it looks cool." You know, I actually did it because I was. I would get really, really hot. And I don't know why I always did this, but I always wore long sleeve shirts uh, when I played. I thought they looked better, kind of white, really nice long sleeve shirts. And, and they were just really hot. So I sweated a lot. And um, these fans kind of helped keep me cool. But it also, when you put lights on the drummer, it looks cool. It shows uh, it shows off a little bit, you know. So um, people would come and they would watch me play and that kind of thing. And we were just a really good band. Canyon was a very visual um, and we would rehearse things down to the very tiniest little detail of like vocals. The vocalist would say, um, okay, we're going to sing this note, and here's where you cut the note off when you're singing this harmony or this vowel, this A or this O. You have to pronounce it like that, and we all are going to do it the same way and cut off at the same time. It was like every tiny little meticulous detail of the music was worked out and talked about, and fixed, and rehearsed, and that kind of thing, and that was my first experience in that kind of a band, which would serve me later in Lone Star, because that's what we do. We talk about every little tiny detail of the music, and we get it down, and that's what I think makes Lone Star a great live band, is that we work things out, and there's no ambiguity there. It's always very uh, very rehearsed, and very worked out, and that kind of thing. Um so yeah, I um, was in Canyon for five years, and then after that, I um, I wanted to be a filmmaker at the time. So um, I had ideas about um, when I left Canyon to be a filmmaker, also still be a drummer, but in my off time when I wasn't drumming, I wanted to be a director. I wanted to direct music videos mostly and maybe make a movie someday or something like that. Never wanted to quit playing drums. But I wanted to have that that sort of dual career, which I still have to this day. I still direct videos. I still uh, work on projects like that. And I'm the drummer for Lone Star. So, you know, in our off time, I work on projects and mostly music videos because those are quick. I can do those. I can shoot them in a day or two, and I can take the material with me out on the road and edit and that kind of thing. So it makes it really easy for a musician to direct music videos because of the scheduling. You know, if you're working every week, you can have a couple of days off, go shoot the video, come back. That's kind of my um, little thing I do on the side, sort of my hobby that 
also makes money a little bit. So I just, you know, do that and it's fun and it's, uh, keeps me interested in filmmaking and drumming at the same time. And I enjoy that a lot. That's come out. It's not really sort of a fallback because we work all the time and, you know, we, we make good money with, with Lone Star and we do our thing and it's just really mostly for fun, but it also makes a little bit of money too. And I usually spend the money that I make on music videos on more video equipment is usually where that goes. So, yeah. Um, I will talk about things I've learned in Lone Star that um, once I got the call from Michael Britt, who was in Canyon for a little while, Michael Britt, he and I played in Canyon for about a year and a half or so before that band split up and all that. And then he moved to Nashville. I was still in Texas, and I got the call from Michael to come join their group, Lone Star. Well, it was called Texas Sea at the time. Texas and Tennessee put together is spelled Texas Sea, Texas Sea, like Tennessee. And uh, we played in that. We, we were Texas Sea for a couple of years before we got to be Lone Star when we got a record deal with B&A Records, which was part of RCA Records. And... Um, Got to meet Joe Galani and all the people there at RCA and BNA, and got to uh, our first experience at making an album, making records, and that was really kind of a a big wake up call because you had to learn things like how to play with the click track and how the whole process works, you know, of tracking and um, all that sort of stuff, you know. And so we basically when we got our record deal, we had to. Our manager at the time, we got a manager and a record deal, kind of all at the same time. Um, and a, so we had a producer and a manager and a record label all of a sudden that we have to answer to and we have to have meetings with and this kind of thing. So we learned a lot about the business from that whole, that whole, um, those three main entities. So we started making records, and one of the things I learned from our manager at the time was, he said, you can't be a bar band and a recording artist at the same time. You got to be one or the other. So we made the decision to quit uh, or cancel some of our bar dates. Or when I say bar dates, I mean like where we were booked at a club, um, a small club somewhere for like two weeks at a time or a week or something like that, where you come in every night and you play from nine o'clock until two in the morning, that kind of thing. We had to quit some of those gigs that we had booked and stop booking those and switch over to being a recording artist where you travel around and you play your own songs to a crowd of people that hopefully have heard of you. Some of them haven't, but they've probably heard a single or two on the radio. And it's, it was really, it was really tough because you had to give up your cash cow, your way of making a living and go and play these concerts to people who have no idea who you are really and hopefully that the radio station that's playing your record would say something about you on the radio about being at some place or opening for some band or uh, you know of course we still played clubs and things but they were just a one-night deal where we went in and we played four or five hours um where i'm sorry not four or five hours what am i saying we would go in and play an hour and a half Whereas before that, we would play four or five hours, and now all of a sudden we're playing an hour or an hour and a half, trying to fill it with our album that, of songs that nobody's heard. And hopefully they've heard at least one single, which at that time was Tequila Talkin' we had on the radio. And um, I really learned a lot, you know, working and touring and um, having to 
learn how to, you know, be on a bus. And again, well, of course, I had already had the experience of being on a bus with Canyon and some of the other guys in the band, Dean and Richie, uh, had not experienced a bus yet. You know, they, they were still they were still new to the whole bus thing. Michael and I had been on the bus before with Canyon and that kind of thing. And so there's a whole learning how to sleep on the bus and learning bus etiquette and all that stuff. And now, and Dean actually, our keyboard player, Dean, he's actually a bus driver. He got so interested in buses and driving and that kind of thing. He got a CDL and he's been actually a bus driver. He's our relief driver actually, but he is as every bit of good a driver as any driver that's out there because he's been doing it so long. He's been doing driving buses since probably about 1997 or 98 or maybe even 1996, I think, when he first started driving buses. Um, just helping the driver out here and there. And then he started, then he got a CDL and started driving like, like driving, driving. And so he's a relief driver. So when we're on a long, long drive and the driver has to sleep, Dean will come up and drive and that kind of thing. So yeah, we all learning how to live on a bus and travel on a bus and stuff like that. We had to learn that and things about radio, how to go and conduct a proper interview. We actually had media training in Lone Star. We had a uh, Kip Kirby was her name. She was a media trainer uh, where you would go in and you would train these um, soon-to-be artists, you know, um, singers, that kind of thing, how to conduct an interview, how to properly, basically how to turn an interview into record sales. That was the whole goal, is to go into talk to radio or talk to some television or something like that, where you don't really go in and try and hawk your your album you don't go and say hey pick up our album in the stores now there was a more subtle way to do it you know you would um, tell stories and you would perform and talk about uh, what you do and how you got started and that kind of thing and hopefully get people interested in who you were as a person and a artist and they would go out and buy your record so we had media training learning how to conduct interviews and that kind of thing which really helped a lot it really helped a lot um, and I've seen some new artists that are out there and that you could tell are not media trained. You can watch their interview and you can see it can you kind of struggle. You can see them kind of struggling and you can see that they're not very comfortable at it and it's not, the interview is not going very well. All the way down to how you sit and uh, how, as a band, as a group, how you talk and not talk over each other and that kind of thing. There's, it, it, there's a real art to it. So we had to learn all that. And, um, but at the, for, back to the personal thing about me being a drummer in this band, and one of the things that I think that I sort of learned about above all, besides the things like you know learning the songs and practicing and doing these things, is what, what I mentioned earlier about learning different styles. And one thing that uh, Michael Britt had said in one of my podcasts, I was talking to him, he had said that one of the things he liked about me was the way that I could sort of change styles in midstream. In other words, we're in the studio, we're working up a song, and we decide in the middle of working the song up, you know, we're recording the song, time is of the essence, of course, and there's the decision is made that, well, you know what, maybe this song, instead of being this heavy-handed thing, maybe it needs to be more subtle, maybe it needs to be more, more a jazzy feel, or it needs to have more of a, a straight-ahead, four-on-the-floor Thing, or maybe it needs to uh, have this sort of jungle drum style. All these different styles of drumming and the language that we learn in the studio really help 
inform the song and, and figure out how you're going to record the song and make it sort of like a hit. And Michael said that he always liked the way that we could just change directions in midstream and say, hey, instead of this thing, let's make it this other thing. And I would just change completely, stop the way I was thinking or doing or playing or whatever, and I would change, everybody would, you know, change their style of the way this song sounds dynamically and style-wise. And he always liked the way that I was able to do that. And for me, and I think it goes back to my early days of listening to records and having all these different styles of music from Chuck Mangione to Boston to Journey to country like Charlie Daniels, that kind of thing. Um, and just listening and learning those drum styles and knowing what those guys are playing and sort of where they're coming from. And uh, and even the language of what you call that, you know, a train beat, uh, four on the floor, a jungle drum. Uh, you know, the, we, we have all these this language that we use in the studio that we all know. We all sort of have learned a different language of how to, not only how to read the chart, which was something I had to learn in the early days of getting with Lone Star and getting in the studio and having to play these songs. They put a chart in front of you and with all these numbers on it, and you're sort of expected to know what to play with all these numbers. And part of it's sort of up to you what you play and and, but a lot of it is like, here's the structure of the song. It follows this path, and here's the what you need to play. And then the rest is just open to you, whatever you think, feel needs to be there. But here, here is the structure of the song. And you had to learn how to do that. And I will say that in the beginning, I was very intimidated. And I was in my 30s at the time, so I, didn't, I wasn't like inexperienced or just some kid, you know, right out of high school. I was experienced. I mean, I'd been playing for years, but... I wasn't used to this chart thing, and so it was very intimidating to me to re- look at this chart, try and figure out where I am in the chart and what part is coming up and how not to mess up this song in this studio that is costing lots of money, and also at the same time how to play with uh, with power and play creatively, put all these really cool licks in there and make it a thing, you know, make it sound amazing and not just sound like I'm just playing scared, you know. So that took quite a bit of thing and also the click track is going on during this time they want to play to a click so you have a click going on in your ears that you have to follow you have a chart that you have to follow and you have to play things that are cool and creative and fun and you have to play tight and you have to hit the drums correctly and with a certain velocity and there has to be some dynamics in there hopefully depending on what the song is it's just all very very difficult to learn uh, coming off of the road, being a road drummer and coming in and all of a sudden, hey, we're going to make an album. So I don't have a lot of regrets of things that I did or didn't do over the years, except for really one. The one that stands out to me is the fact that when I was younger, especially when I was in Canyon, the group Canyon where we were had records and we were on a record label and we were playing big shows and that kind of thing, we were meeting all these artists is that I had the opportunity many, many times to write with other writers, other artists, other singers, other whoever, other guitar players, other even other drummers, whatever. I had the opportunity to write, and I would hear other people going, yeah, I'm writing with this person, and I would watch people sit in a room with a guitar, a couple of guitars, whatever, and throw out ideas and say, you know, write a song, basically, make up a song. And I'd watched people do that, and that just did not interest me in the least. I was the least interested in that. I wanted to be, I was thinking more like filmmaker. 
I wanted to be a director behind the camera, sort of hands-on doing things, big things with videos and music, you know, music videos and movies and things like that. And I had made the decision not to, you know, sit in a room all day with a guitar. Well, I could play guitar a little bit and try and, you know, haggle over this song and try and figure out how does this chorus go and let's get this song finished. I just didn't want to do that. And I wish that I had. I wish that I had suffered through it a little more and that I had gone in and and gotten better at writing because I will tell you that songwriting, owning intellectual property like that, being a creator of something like that could be very, very, very lucrative. You could not do any better than to, even if you're not a musician, even if you're just a lyricist or you play three chords on a guitar or a piano, it doesn't matter. If you can create a song like that, you're going to get better at it. You're going to do it, and if you keep doing it and you make yourself do it more and you try to have fun at it and you try to just keep honing that craft, you are going to make money and you are going to be good at that. At some point, you're going to be better at that. And let me tell you that if you are a writer of a song that that goes popular, let's say, gets on the charts or someone puts it on an album – whether it's your album or somebody else's album or whatever, or it's in a movie or a TV commercial. And I will say that that is really, from what I've heard, learned about the, the group, the Black Keys, they got their big break, their start. The reason why you know who they are now is because of commercials. They Somebody put one of their songs on a big car commercial, and that kind of got popular, and people were like, who's this band? Uh, and they started doing more commercials and their songs started getting on television shows and movies and things like that. And then they started selling more records and the next thing you know, they're doing big concerts and that kind of thing. And their whole, the Black Keys whole career was really kind of boosted, let's say, by commercials and by songs that they had written and recorded just in the guy's garage i believe it was in the drummer's garage where they started and they um kept going kept going and kept playing and believing in themselves and kept playing these shows and writing songs and now they're one of the biggest bands out there they do these huge concerts and a lot of times it's just the two of them playing it's just the it's just the drummer and the guitar player now they do have some of the musicians that play with them but they'll i believe a portion of the show is just where those those two will the rest of the guys will leave the stage, and it'll just be uh, Dan and Pat just up there playing just drums and guitar and singing and that kind of thing. And people dig that. And uh, there's a lot of bands that have that have done that, you know, like the White Stripes, also the Ting Tings. That's a drummer and a drummer and a guitar player kind of thing. Um, they got their start in. They wrote songs and they recorded them, and they got popular and. They made more money off of their commercials and their back in the day and their uh, what they call licensing their music to movies and commercials and TV than they did playing live. And, of course, now they they probably make just as much money touring and these big, huge concerts, the Black Keys I'm talking about, than they do, you know, uh, putting their music in commercials and stuff. But I guess my point is one of the things I missed out on early in the day was that I wish that I had gotten more involved in songwriting. And now I, st- I do that now. I do write with some people now. But I think that if I had started back when I was in Canyon, I would have honed that craft and I would have been, I would have networked that and I would have uh, been a better writer today 
than I am if I had started that early. And also, just from a monetary standpoint, if I had started back then, possibly some of the songs that I had written back then would have worked their course and they would have gotten pitched around and possibly cut by some other artists or whatever. So that when I got into Lone Star, I would have been more involved in the writing and I would have had some hits like Mr. Mom or Amazed or could have been a What About Now or it could have been, you know, I did I did co-write on a few Lone Star songs or a couple of them I came up with the idea for. I didn't really write the, the whole thing, but I came up with the hook or the idea or something like that or I was part of the writing process. So uh, that I, I sort of enjoy that a little more now than I used to because now I know what's involved and what it could be, what the whole thing could end up being, and that's exciting to me now. I wished I had got that when I was younger. So if you take anything away from this, definitely know that intellectual property writing of anything, whether it's a poem or a, a movie script or a song, anything at all, could eventually end up being a very uh, wealthy outcome. I mean, it could be a wealth builder. It could buy houses. It could, not that that's the most important thing in the world. I'm just saying that intellectual property is king. And if you can be involved in some kind of writing or creating of this type of thing, then more power to you. And I hope you do. And I hope you sit down and think of lyrics. And anytime somebody says words that sound cool, write it down on a piece of paper and then take it to somebody you know that plays is a really good guitar player or that plays piano really well or that is a good words wordsmith, let's say, and sit down with them and say, hey, what could this be? Let's make this, write this into a song and then uh, possibly demo it or uh, make a recording of it or something like that and pitch it around. And you just never know. Put it on YouTube, something like that. If There's a great story about a guy who wrote a song, recorded it, put it on YouTube, and one of those companies that just has like a thousand songs that you can put for your wedding your wedding video or something like that. And the wedding videographer had used his song in this wedding video. And because of the song, because of the song he wrote and recorded, it got, it went viral. And it was like this YouTube video. And I can't think of what the song is, but it was some kind of like a love song. It fit perfectly with this wedding video. And people were sharing it and passing it along and hashtagging it and all this stuff. And it got millions and millions of views and his music was on it, and I think most people really, really loved the music in that wedding video because, I mean, I don't think people watched it just for the wedding video. You've seen a million wedding videos. People get married, and it's uh, very poignant, and it's beautiful and that kind of thing, but the fact that this music was really fantastic, and the, the writer uh, had gotten a check in the mail for like ten grand or something for one month. One month later, he got ten grand in the bank. I mean, that it was his. It was, he got a check. It was his name on it. And he actually called the company and said, I think there's a mistake. And they said, no, it's not a mistake. You wrote this song. It was on a YouTube video. It went viral. It's all yours. Enjoy. And he, that just kind of kept going. And so this to make my point is that if you sit down and you spend the time to create lyrics, music, that kind of thing, um, don't sell yourself short because that could end up being something. It may end up being nothing at all, but the fact that you, you have something like that could be very valuable and that you're getting better at it and you're doing it more and more and more and more. So 
keep writing and keep creating and keep practicing. And hopefully, if you're a, a young person or not even a young person, if you're just anybody who aspires to be a musician in a band, it's never too late. You can just practice and you can follow your heart and just keep making the music that you want to make your way and being who you are and writing and creating and you just never know you'll learn lessons along the way like I have but hopefully it will be a great journey and you'll learn things and you'll um, hopefully be in a position that I'm in which is I love my job I get out there and I play drums for Lone Star every night that we well not every night but every night that we have a gig we have a full summer coming up and this is after COVID you know which is pretty amazing that we're able to get out and make this music again uh, that COVID is kind of, I feel like it's mostly behind us now, and we're able to get out there by looking at our schedule. I see that it is mostly behind us now because we are booked in a lot of shows, and a lot of people are coming out after not having seen a show in a long time and seeing us play and um, seeing some of the new music that we've uh, re-recorded. We went in and re-recorded our number one our 10 number one songs. I made a new album out of that, and that's going to be out soon. So we're doing those versions of the songs live and just putting on a great show for the people, and it's so fun. And I love my job, and I love what I do, and I just hope that you come see us play and that uh, maybe if uh, you take anything away from this podcast at all, it's that just believe in yourself and create and write and don't be afraid to pour your heart out into a song and make something out of it and enjoy your life and make music and have fun and hopefully have as much fun as I've had and once again this is Keach Rainwater on Designated Drummer and I hope to see you next time and thank you again for listening and um, see you next time